BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Women to Watch is an intimate look into the lives of prominent and influential women leaders from around the world and the challenges they faced on their journey. It's the real story behind her title. Join us every week to hear more stories about women from around the world and in your own communities at womentowatch.net. Do you stream on a Roku, Fire Stick, Google TV, or Apple TV? Now you can watch 6ABC 24-7 with the 6ABC Philadelphia streaming app. For the big story on Action News. Search 6ABC Philadelphia and start streaming today. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch. I'm Sue Rocco. Thanks so much for joining me for um, another week of profiling women leaders from around the world. This week, I'm going to be joined by Patricia Wellenbach. And Patricia is the president and CEO of the Please Touch Museum here in Philadelphia. She is also the very first woman and nurse to chair the Jefferson University Board of Trustees. So we're gonna be talking about all of the roles that she has. Um, as always, you'll hear from our corporate partners who make up our watch team of on-air contributors during the show. And this week you'll be hearing from Madeline Bell of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and also Carol Eggert, Head of Military Affairs uh, for Comcast. So now I'm very excited and honored to welcome to the show, Patricia Wellenbach. How are you? Good to see Hi. you. I'm good, Trish. Thanks so much for being with me. Pleasure. Uh, my first question right off the bat, because I'm, I've been born and raised in Philadelphia and had never heard of Tenafly, New Jersey. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, tell our listeners just a little bit about the community there and, and what it was like. So back in the day, uh, in the late 50s, early 60s, um, their small towns uh, kind of started to grow up in the northern part of New Jersey, just across the George Washington Bridge as um, families who had immigrated to um, this country started to move out of New York, Brooklyn, the Bronx, those areas, Staten Island. And so there's a whole uh, community of towns there. Uh, in an area called Bergen County, and Tenafly was a small little town. Now it's a very big town. It's fascinating when I go back there. Oh, really? Um, yeah, and uh, uh, the first town we lived in was Cresco, New Jersey, in a development that had like, 
I don't know, probably 40 or 50 homes. And I think there were 12 different languages spoken in the houses there, Polish and German and Italian. Wow. Um, and uh, at the end of our block was a horse farm. So that tells you how early it was in the stages of developing the northern part of New Jersey. So that's where I grew up. Yeah. And um, also, we, we had a lovely introductory call and we talked about growing up Irish Catholic yes. um, in the 60s. 70s for me, a little bit later. But um, when you think back at those times, I, I think there's always this sense of, um, you know, a, a traditional, normal childhood being raised, you know, at that time, so very different from today. What what stands out for you um, as, you know, very prominent in, in your younger years? Yeah, so traditional normal, those are interesting adjectives to describe it. Um, you know, I was the, I am was the oldest of five children. It was, um, you know, very traditional at that time. My father was worked out of the home in New York. He was uh, the first generation of Irish immigrants, first to go to college in his family, the youngest of seven children. My mother um, was second generation. Um, her family immigrated here, um, my, my great grandparents, and um, she grew up, they both grew up in the Bronx. And um, my father met my mother at, uh, through my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, um, because the guys used to go to the local parish school and play bingo. And my father called the bingo call numbers over the loudspeaker in the school. Um, you know, and then they were fortunate enough because my father did go to college and earned a very good wage when he got out of college that they could afford to move, buy a house and move to New Jersey, which is kind of what happened. Yeah. And my mom lived at home. We had one car. My father took the bus to you know, New York and um, grew up in a pretty busy neighborhood, uh, you know, no gates, no fences, you know, 10 houses in a row and every mother opened the door in the morning and you landed in someone's house for lunch and someone sent you home for dinner. And I actually think at the time, any any parent on the block could discipline any other kid. Like it didn't matter whether you were a kid or not. I get to tell you, you're out of line, go home. Right. Um, you know, so, on my street, we every neighbor had the key to everyone else's house. Yeah. Just in right. case. I, I'm not sure we even locked the doors. I don't think our doors were locked either. So I'm not sure what those keys were for. But. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, you know, it's fascinating to me now because when I think about the engagement of parents and raising young children. So at the time we were living in, in this development in Cresco and I went to the Catholic grammar school one town over in Tenafly. So think about the difference between like, Bryn Mawr and uh, Ardmore, or, you know, like that far, not not far at all. Right. And um, so uh, I was in the first grade and I used to walk three blocks, cross two streets um, and got on a New, York, a New Jersey, New York bus. I had a little wow. packet of bus tickets and I would give the bus driver my bus ticket and I would get on the bus. I was in the first grade and I would try wow. to sit in the front. And that was the bus that actually went to Manhattan. It, that's where it landed at the end. Wow, <laughs> wow. And uh, I would get off at the bus stop in Tenafly and walk two blocks over to the school in the schoolyard. I, I don't know any parent that would do that now. No, you know? um, not it, at all. Were there other I, children with you getting on this bus? And 
There was Traveling. one um, older girl who lived in our neighborhood. She was about, she's probably in the fifth grade, sixth grade when I was in the first grade. And uh, that was it. And, you know, two young girls, I would walk a block and a half, get to the front of her house, meet up with her. So kind of fascinating. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, later in the show, I do want to talk to you about, you know, your role with the museum and kind of some differences that you see amongst children today, yeah. you know, from the time we were growing up. And so what, what we did live in kind of a, you know, just a f much freer um, time. And I wonder as a little girl, what were you afraid of? Was there anything that you were afraid of, even though you had this freedom to just kind of be out and about in the community by yourself? I don't actually remember like thinking about the word fear when I was a little kid. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't love roller coasters. Um, I was <laughs> tall and, you know, we used to go to Palisade park and places like that, that had the big roller coasters and you had to be a certain height to get on the roller coaster. And because I was tall, I think I took my first big roller coaster ride when I was seven and like, I was too little to get on, but I was tall enough to fit. And so I didn't really like roller coasters after that. I still don't particularly like them. Um, yeah. But I don't know that I really was afraid of anything. And like decades, decades later, as my father um, was older, and I remember him commenting to me once, like, you were a most fearless child. And typically, oldest children are not fearless. You know, they're much more grounded to the family and not as adventuresome, um, yeah. maybe because the parents are watching them so much. I don't know. But um, yeah, I... I'm probably more afraid of things now than I was then. <laughs> well, we just know too much. There's, we right. just have Correct. way too much information. Yeah. Correct. Um, tell me about your grandmother, your relationship with her. I know you had a really close relationship yeah. with her and you attribute a little bit of your um, courage and independence um, to your time with her. Yeah. So I was very, very close with my grandmother. I had the great fortune that I was, 40 when she passed away. So I had a good long life with her. Oh, that's and, wonderful. Yeah. Um, she was an integral part of our family because um, her husband died when I was two. They were still living in, in uh, the Bronx at the time. Um, but, and my grandmother, to her credit, had been a at-home mom her whole life. And she raised two daughters, my mother and her younger sister, who was three years younger. And my grandmother ended up going back to work and became a secretary. And when she retired, she was what today would have been called the executive assistant to the chairman of the board of Frank B. Hall Corporation. I mean, oh, wow. yeah, they had her retirement party at Windows on the World. I mean, you know, oh, wow. That's yeah, so cool. but she always considered herself a secretary. Um, but she had this um, tremendous capacity um, for bringing people into her life and just, um, she was just, a wonderful, wonderful person. And she taught me a lot about integrity and ethics, and I didn't even realize it. Um, you know, she'd be sitting there at dinner on a Friday night because she used to come out to New Jersey on Friday night and spend the weekends with us. And, um, you know, she'd talk about, you know, well, I go to the ladies' room because of my job. Like all the other secretaries want to know what I know. And I just say, I don't know anything. Like you, you have to understand, like when you have big responsibilities, you have to protect those responsibilities and you have to be accountable and, and respectful of the role that you have. And, um, but she also had this amazing capacity 
like if anyone was sick or needed anything, there was always a meal delivered. Uh, you know, when she was older and retired to Florida, she was retired and she was doing respite care so that families who had family members who maybe were stroke victims or had Alzheimer's and were at home, she would go in and take care of the, the compromised family members so the other family members could get out, maybe go get your hair done or go for a walk or whatever. Um, and uh, she could throw a great party. I remember coming when I was out of college, uh, I was in a bar one night with some friends of mine and my grandmother was there and we went home and she was still there. So um, she was in the, <laughs> the college. Where she was. Oh and, and, and I was so fortunate when I had my own children um, who are now 36 and 33. She came and stayed with me for a month when both of the boys were, were born. And those boys were very close to their great grandmother. As a matter of fact, my granddaughter's middle name is my grandmother's name. And, and what is that? Marion. Marion. And it was such Marion. an honor to, to her when my son told us that, you know, meet your first granddaughter, Cora Marion. And, you oh, know, that's so nice. meant the world to us. So. Yeah, that's so nice. You know, did she talk to you about being a girl, a woman, and, you know, going out and pursuing your dreams and aspirations? Was there, an, you know, that, that kind of, uh, independence that she wanted you to have? Yes. Yeah, so my grandmother taught me how to cook, how to bake, how to sew my own clothes. Okay. She taught me how to press a man's shirt. So it oh. looked fabulous. I mean, she had all of those skills. And I think as she was teaching me those things, we'd be having these conversations. And uh, when I was nine, I was in the Girl Scouts and I got my first badge was a cooking badge. And I cooked Sunday dinner for my whole family. There were seven of us plus my grandmother. And uh, I remember roasting a chicken, fixing the green beans, baking a pie. And I'm sure throughout the entire time that she was kind of standing there in that kitchen coaching me, she was helping me to build a sense of confidence that I could tackle anything. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I think it was subliminal. I don't, I don't ever remember her being like the grand dame, grandmother on, uh, uh, in Downton Abbey, sitting down with Lady Mary, giving her sage <laughs> advice. But I somehow think that was my grandmother. <laughs> it's so interesting that you mentioned being a Girl Scout. Last week, we had um, the head of uh, Southern Central New Jersey, Girl Scout Jenny Hill, on the show. And it's just fascinating to me, the percentage of women who are in positions of leadership who were Girl Scouts. You know, what do you remember about that? What, how do you think that impacted where you are today. Yeah, I think it's part of great pride for the Girl Scouts and what they have contributed to women leaders over decades and decades. And I, again, you have to remember, it was the, I grew up in the 60s and the early 70s, and there weren't a lot of ways for women to excel and show leadership um, and to, to really invest in yourself for confidence. I mean, this was before women were getting, or young girls were getting really active in sports and things like that. I mean, it just was at the early stages of that. So I think through Girl Scouts, it, it I don't know, there was this community and you would want to try something to get a badge, right? And mm -hmm. so you would get this courage and self-confidence. Um, and, you know, I think that's part of what they do instill in you, this sense of you can do it, just try it, you can fail at it and then try it again and you'll figure it out. Um, yeah. And so I really think that that is part of what happens in Girl Scouts. And I think the interesting thing was also, um, you know, a little bit of competition. 
um, you know, cookie sales. My grandmother used to help me achieve my cookie sales. She used to take the um, sheet to the office and get everyone to sign up for her cookie sales. <laughs> there you go. But a little bit of competition. And uh, so just all worked out. Plus, it's, it's an environment of all girls. So I think often about, we talk on the show about an all-girls school versus, you know, co-ed. And I think there's always that lack of distraction of the boys not being there and, and the girls can, you know, really dive into that competitive um, part of the organization and, and want to, to excel. Yeah, I went to a co-ed grammar school and then an all-girls high school. Oh, you did. Yeah. And Tell me I about think, it. Yeah. yeah. So I went to an all girls high school um, run by the school sisters of Notre Dame. Talk about, you know, Catholic school environments, tremendously uh, remarkable order of nuns um, and had high standards for all of us. And this was when nuns still wore habits. Um, and, you know, they had a they were a big presence in our lives. And I think being in those environments, particularly as, you know, we've studied and come to learn, you know, particularly uh, girls who gravitate towards math and science, you know, get through those middle school years and you start to get a little reticent in a classroom. Um, you can't be reticent in a classroom when, you know, it's all girls and particularly when the nuns are there because they'll just call on you. You know, my my maiden name was Dolan and the nuns would go, Miss Dolan, you know, translate that Latin, Latin phrase. What do you got for me? Yeah. And uh, so, you know, when you, you know, you're all leaders and you're all supporting each other. And, mm. um, you know, my dearest friend in the world, I met on my first day of high school. And uh, we have been friends since we were 14. And um, her last name was DeVivo. My last name was Dolan. Uh, there, you go, right? there you right. go. There you go. The alphabet. We've had a remarkable journey together. We did not grow up in the Philadelphia area and she and her husband ended up living here and we raised children together and it's been such a gift to me. Yeah. Um, so I still carry my, I can call my friend Ro and go, remember Sister Mary Aquin when she said. <laughs> <laughs> that I, I have a very similar story. And then of course my daughter went to the Mount, Mount St. Joe Academy, yeah. all girls and one of her dearest friends she met as a freshman as well. Um, when did you, when did you start to think about nursing school? Um, when I was in uh, high school, I started working when I was about 11. Um, but I always did volunteer work again. That was inspired by my grandmother. She did a lot of volunteer work. She used to volunteer at the foundling home in New York and feed, uh, orphaned babies and cuddle them in, in the days, oh, wow. in the early days of before that was even in vogue to do. Um, and so I volunteered one summer at Englewood Hospital, and it was a remarkable experience. And I just walked in there and I'm like, oh, I think this is where I should belong. I mean, up until that time, I actually was not a big math and science geek, and I really gravitated more towards writing and English and history. And I thought I'd end up going to law school. Um, but that summer that I was volunteering at the hospital, I was like, oh, I think this is for me. So I wasn't the six year old girl saying, I want to be a nurse when I grow up. You know, I was probably 15 that summer wow. um, and then kind of decided it's what I wanted to do. And it didn't, you know, I had my moments of, oh my goodness, can I do this? Should I do this? And a really tough identity time in my junior year of college thinking, oh, I'm not sure I can do this. Um, so, but I'm, it was one of the best decisions I ever made for myself to this day. Yeah. Um, how, how hard was school for you? Was, was it, you know, did you have to work really, really hard, you know, to, to get those good grades or, or was school kind of 
um, did it come easy for you? No, I had to work hard. Um, I had a fair amount of discipline. You know, I was fond of telling my own children, you know, really take advantage of school because, you know, when you're sitting in the bar stool when you're 40 talking to your buddies, no one's going to say, gee, I wish I partied more in college or high school. They're going to say, gee, I wish I took a few more courses in this or worked a little harder. And yeah. I think you can always work harder. But um, I was, I'm a smart kid. I have, I would say I'm much more street smart than book smart. Um, oh. So the book smart, I have to work out a little bit more. Okay. Um, you shared something with me. You said um, you always had this sense of finding new potential in yourself. And I love the way you said that because I think, you know, there's no doubt life is a journey and we're constantly evolving and learning new things about ourselves. And um, you wondered what you may have missed along the way. Have you discovered something um, about yourself that that is a potential that you did miss when you were growing up? Um, you know, I often like I, I wonder, like, well, if I had gotten the MBA or the PhD, where would the journey have been different? Right. And um, or, you know, if I had played a sport, what would have, you know, I, I have a tendency to excel at everything I do, right? I keep pushing myself to get there. And so I often wonder, like, so what were the things that I might have thought about doing or that just didn't come across my pathway that may have taken me on a different journey? It's not that I don't love the journey I've been on and I continue to love it. It's been mm -hmm. tremendous. I mean, I've had a great run and a great ride um, and I'm still enjoying every minute of it. Yeah. Um, listen, we're going to go into our first break. And uh, when we come back, I want to talk about a little bit of a career crisis you had as a junior in college. Yes. Stay with us for our watch team. And we'll be back with Patricia Wellenbach. We are CHOP. And we can't wait to show you around. We're the nation's first children's hospital. Now, a care network with more than 50 locations that continues to expand. Three state-of-the-art research buildings with 1.5 million square feet of space. We have grown from 12 beds 165 years ago to nearly 600 beds and one of the best children's hospitals in the world. We have a level one trauma center 11 floors of patient units, more than 20 operating rooms, first-of-its-kind delivery unit for babies with birth defects, a separate cardiac operative and catheterization suite, and places to learn, like our internationally recognized simulation center. We have trained generations of leaders in the field of pediatrics. We are world leaders in medicine, surgery, and science one of the top recipients in NIH funding for pediatric research. In this building, pioneers in CAR-T therapy, mitochondrial disease, brain tumors, hyperinsulinism, and other rare diseases. Here, groundbreaking work in fetal surgery, genetics and genomics, and neurology. In our newest building, leaders in social determinants of health, clinical informatics and epidemiology, autism, trauma, and injury prevention. Our patients come from every state and 115 countries.
Meeting these challenges requires the best and the brightest. We are passionate about pediatrics. We are motivated to make a difference in the world and in our community. We are a team. We are CHOP. Do you stream on a Roku, a Fire Stick, Google TV, or Apple TV? Now you can watch 6ABC 24-7 with the 6ABC Philadelphia streaming app. Watch Action News Live. And the big story on Action News. Plus special programming, breaking news, and severe weather updates. Tremendous amounts of rain. Always on. Always the news team you trust. Watch 6ABC 24-7 on your streaming device. Search 6ABC Philadelphia and start streaming today. Hi, and welcome back to the show. I'm joined this week by Patricia Wellenbach. Patricia is the president and CEO of the Please Touch Museum here in Philadelphia and also board chair for Jefferson University um, Board of Trustees. And um, I wanted to talk a little bit about a a crisis, so-called crisis that you had as a junior in college. Tell us what happened. Yeah, I was a junior at Boston College studying to be a nursing student as a nursing student, so I need to be a nurse. And, you know, nurses don't have a lot of flexibility in their scheduling. You spend a lot of time uh, either in the science lab or in the hospital. And I was in an accelerated program and almost finishing up all of my clinical placements. And I was going home at one more big clinical placement. And then I was going to do my thesis the following fall. And I was going home for the Christmas holiday. And I thought, I don't know that I should do this. I, I, I'm not sure. I, I, maybe this is not for me. And I just hadn't found my spot yet, my rhythm. And um, I went home and I told my parents, now, you know, first generation to go to college and now their oldest daughter's at college and she's going, I'm not sure this is working. And uh, my father said, oh, well, you had better figure that out, my friend. Uh, yeah. And uh, so I went back to school and I, met with my advisor and she said, oh, Trish, you're going to be just fine. And I said, I I don't think so. And she said, I'll tell you what, there's this new program that's starting at Duke University at the hospital there. And it's a nurse externship program for the summer. I think they're only taking Duke students, but why don't you apply for it and go and see, get in the clinical setting for an entire summer and see. And I said, "Uh, okay, I'll give that a try. Uh, I had to actually go home and open a map and find out where Durham was. I mean, I knew where it was. So I'm like, okay, that's pretty far south. And how am I going to get there? Um, And I applied. And uh, the Monday Memorial Day weekend, I got into my little Dodge Colt. uh, And I (laughs) drove all by myself. No air conditioning, roll down windows. No GPS. No GPS, (laughs) no cell phones, no Sirius. There's nothing to get me through. I remember getting off the main highway and then there, like the last two hours into Durham was almost like a dirt road. And I think I cried my way into Durham. I'm like, what am I doing here? Oh my gosh. And uh, I checked in and I got assigned to an apartment and uh, with, there were two girls, other girls, both from Russell Sage College in um, Albany, New York. And I spent the entire summer working in on Carter Suite, which was the high-risk labor and delivery suite at Duke at the time. And I just found my home. 
And, and that's I, a stressful environment. High it is very stressful, very stressful. But I was like, this is what I was born to do. Wow. And um, I came back feeling like, okay, I'm ready. Let's go. And um, and that's how I launched my career as a high-risk labor and delivery nurse. And I think it was that long drive to Durham and not knowing a soul that made me fearless about moving to Philadelphia a year later when I didn't know a soul in the city and just came here and fought hard for a job at Pennsylvania Hospital in their labor and delivery suite. And, you know, four decades later, here I am, you know, running one of the most remarkable children's museums in the country, a gift to the children of our city and our region, and the first woman chair of Thomas Jefferson University in 200 years. I mean, it's just remarkable to me. I, I sometimes wake up and go, how'd that happen? When how did that happen? Yeah, it's so funny because life just goes so fast. And 40 years ago, you would not have you weren't aiming for that, right? So, so tell me about the opportunity uh, at the Please Touch Museum. How did that come about? Yeah, so I've had several different careers in, in my professional life. And the kind of last big career I had uh, was um, I had a consulting firm and I did a lot of work for organizations and then ended up getting recruited to run a school for children with autism and severe emotional uh, challenges. And that organization was in deep financial crisis, et cetera. And I had really created a portfolio of experience to take mission-driven organizations from crisis to success. Um, and worked there for a little over two and a half years and really stabilized them, saved the school and, and did a lot of work there. And was just finishing up that work. And Sally Setson, who was the board chair at the museum at the time, they were in deep financial distress and challenge. They were entering into a bankruptcy. They had $60 million worth of debt. And Sally called me one day and said, I don't know if anyone's put their name on your dance card yet, but if you're thinking about doing something next after Green Tree, would you come and work for us? I'm like, Sally, I'm kind of tired. I just did that work. And she said, well, we could really use you. And that was the summer of 2015. And by November, I was here and it has been an amazing journey for me. I have learned so much, worked with so many remarkable people and have such pride in the work that we have done. Not only did we survive a, a really challenging bankruptcy and financial crisis, then we survived a year long closure during the pandemic, mm -hmm. reopened. We are beating our 2019 numbers for visitors, for revenue. Um, we are, we've launched a remarkable program in kindergarten readiness, uh, getting underserved and under access children ready to learn and launch in kindergarten. That's got a million dollars worth of federal funding behind it. Uh, we've got big plans for 2026. So I love this job. It's I make children and grownups happy every day. What could be better? Yeah. So what is your... What do you think your your secret is to to looking at a problem as, as severe as, you know, a, a museum having to file for bankruptcy and turning it around? What what is going through your mind? What am I going to do first? Um, I kind of get in my head where I think we should go. And then I say, OK, what am I going to do first? So when I came here for the bankruptcy, to, to work for them during the bankruptcy. I presumed that we would get out of the bankruptcy successfully. And so the question was, when we got out of the bankruptcy, what was this museum going to do? What was it going to be? How was it going to be valuable, relevant, 
and have a place in this city. And then I figured out what I had to do to get there. Who did were the you people analyze, that Yeah, excuse, did you analyze what, what did they not do, not to, you know, what was it that they were doing wrong that didn't allow them to flourish? I don't think it, I, it's a great question. And so many people have asked me that question. And I could not say that it wasn't flourishing because even in spite of their financial ch challenges, they never closed one day. Mm -hmm. they, they actually stayed true to mission. And what I really love is organizations that are messy and a little unsettled that have remarkable mission and potential. Mm. And I'm fond of saying, give me four or five people who believe in the future of an organization and I will help them build something remarkable. Wow. And that's my that is fun. Yeah. And I never want to be the smartest person in the room and I never want to be the only person in the room. Um, and so I, I find that if I surround myself with really smart people who will ask me really good questions and challenge me um, and are really talented at what I bring them into the community to do and I get out of their way, it's amazing. I'm yeah. a builder and a gardener. A builder and a gardener. There you go. And you know it, right? Yes. I think one of the things that I think holds people back, not just women, is they don't know what they're here meant to do. When did you discover that? You know, when did you really understand this is what I do well? Yeah. So probably about 12 years ago, a brilliant journalist asked me that question in an interview. And I was like, I don't know the answer to that. And then he said, oh, come on, Trish, you must know. And I thought about it and I said, oh, I know. So I was 21 years old, working in the high-risk labor and delivery unit at Pennsylvania Hospital. We did 6,000 plus deliveries a year very complicated uh, deliveries, really complex communities that we were serving. And I was in a room with a woman who was experiencing some of the most acute pain she had ever experienced in her life. And I had to look at her and say, look at me, come on. I got this with you. We're gonna get through this together. And I promise you on the other side, it's gonna be amazing. Now, that's yeah. not the language I used, but it's what I did. It was, I always knew that if you could get the patient through that deep pain, through that deep uncertainty, that if you were their stripper guide, could support them, encourage them, help them, put the right support person in the room with them, that amazing things would happen. And I, I think I learned it there. I also learned in a labor and delivery unit where you could walk on the unit and there'd be nobody in labor. And 16 hours later, we delivered 28 babies, which actually happened to me one night. Oh my gosh. You got to know who to tell where to go when, like you yeah. go there, now you try this. And I remember saying to one senior physician, you want to do this cesarean section? I'll tell you what, you mop the floor, I'll set the room for you. And he got off and mopped the floor and I set the room and he got started. So, wow. Wow. you know, you let time become your enemy when babies are on their way. Oh my gosh. What would you, are you an optimist? I mean, you, would you I, say I you're an optimist? I would say I am an optimist. My husband says not as much as I should be. He says, you know, everyone's <laughs> you get that maudlin Irish thing going, honey. Uh, <laughs> I do believe that there is a solution to every problem. And that if you just take a breath, right? What's the solution? What's the problem? What are you trying to solve for? Who has to help me solve the problem? And how are we going to get there? I think as a leader, things go right. You give the credit. Things go wrong. You take the blame. And I always have behaved that way. If things don't go well, I got to own it, right? Like I just, I missed it or I didn't get it right. 
um, that's what authentic leadership is about. And when things go really well, it's not me, it's this individual, this team, this group. Mm. Um, it's what you have to do. I mean, yeah. it's how you actually aggregate people that want to work with you. I never mm. think of anyone as working for me. And there are many times that I'm working for them, right? What can I do for you to help you succeed, to make you feel rewarded in the work that you do every day? It's That's an important really question advice. for leaders to ask. Yes, yes, really good advice. And the ability to be humble in, in your role at the top. Um, t tell me, how, do you think about your role with um, Thomas Jefferson University as the first, you know, firsts are exciting, especially first for women. And we're yeah. seeing a lot. Um, so the first woman and nurse to, to chair the board, um, what are you most proud of? other than landing that title? I think that um, in the course of everything I have done up until the point where the board invited me to be the chair and represent the organization at the highest level at the board table, I believe that all, everything I did got me ready for that. Everything from being a nurse to being a caregiver and a caretaker for parents and family members who have gone through health crises, through shepherding organizations, through good times and challenging times, to building boards, to building executive leadership teams, to restructuring. I think all of that, I am so proud of all of those accomplishments. And I think that's what got me ready. Do you see the connection between that and even the little girl, the oldest of five, who had to kind of lean in and help at home? Do you, is there a connection there? Yes, because sometimes as the leader, whether you're the CEO or the board member, you do play a little bit of a role of um, an, uh, a peacemaker, a connector, an interpreter, right, to all the voices in the room. Even if it's just, you know, I'm making the lunches for all my siblings and I only got eight minutes and I got to do five sandwiches and like everybody wants to be different. I'm like, no, we're having peanut butter and jelly today. Tomorrow we're going to have, you know, cream cheese and jelly. Like, Because <laughs> you want cream cheese. Like, I'm like, I don't have time for that. I think peanut I was probably nine when I was saying. <laughs> um, and I think that's really kind of what you have to be. Um, I, I also think as I have evolved in my leadership, in the business world and in the in the boardroom, um, I talk less and less, um, and I I practice that a lot as the board chair. Um, I want to hear from the management team. I want to hear from the trustees in the room, and then I want to be able to create the connections between what I'm hearing. I do one of my gifts is that I do see around corners before they come. Um, and I, it's, it's a great asset of mine and I can provide counsel to even my board chair here at the museum and say, listen, I think this is how this is going to go. And why don't we start to plan for that? Um, and that has also really served me well. And it's been something that have, people have commented on that I'm able to kind of see that before other people do. Mm -hmm. I, I think you have a very good sense of who you are, which you know, when we talk about what holds women back in particular, um, I often think it's that just sense of not knowing who they are and what, what they're good at. Um, 
And I think a good leader has to be decisive. Would Are you decisive? You know, something comes to you, which is probably on a daily basis between your two roles. You're not going to belabor it. You're going to see it and make a decision. I usually don't belabor it um, because if you're paying attention at all time, you're probably almost ready for it, right? Not everything. Yeah. But, um, but as you get older and you have more experiences, you've got that arsenal in your head that you can go, oh, I've been in this room before. It may have been a little bit different, but I think I know how the movie ends, right? And so what do I want to move around uh, now so that it mm -hmm. doesn't end that way or it does end that way, you know, yeah. we're going to get there. Yeah. Um, you know, I think also that, listen, I've had amazing titles, daughter, sister, friend, mother, wife, CEO, board member, grandmother, board chair. They're all part of who I am. And at any given moment in my life, one of those may take more precedent than others. Um, I was a patient in our hospital a year ago. I was quite unexpectedly diagnosed with cancer. And I wondered at the time, why now? Mm. When I'm the chair and now I'm the patient and I'm going to experience it this way. What am I going to learn? How will that make me a better chair? How will that make me be uh, more attuned to what the management team is struggling with or problem solving for or moving through and how am I called to be a stronger chair because of that? Um, you know, all those experiences. Yeah, I would imagine yeah, all of that you you learned from that experience. Yes. And so, you know, it is the aggregation of everything that makes you a stronger leader a stronger contributor to our community. I am deeply committed to Philadelphia. I will do everything and anything I can to continue to sit at whatever table I need to sit at to help it improve and realize all of its potential too. Um, so there's lots of work to do. And I believe I'm called to do certain things at certain times. And I, I lean in, I just wait and go, okay, maybe this is where I should go next. Yeah, that's a really good attitude. Um, t can you tell us something that'll make us hopeful? Many of us are are worried about the healthcare system just in in the United States in general, and I know that a lot has happened um, post COVID. Um, something that will make us hopeful that that the Thomas Jefferson Health System itself is is working on that's exciting and and you're excited about. Yeah, well, first of all, we are lucky in the Philadelphia region that we probably have the most accomplished healthcare, academic, medical centers, pediatric hospitals research, maybe in the country. And so the ability to provide access is here. What we've got to do is start to lean in and address the inequities in access to healthcare and erase those disparities. And I think that's something that Jefferson is very committed to, um, not to do it alone, but to do it in partnership with our other healthcare institutions. Um, I think we're doing everything that we can at Jefferson to make um, care more, even more humane. It's a scary place being in a hospital. Mm. And just think about the reason why you have to go to a hospital. You're scared before you go, and then you walk in. And there's so much unknown. And so what do we need to be doing in the entire patient experience, the caregiver experience, 
Um, and that's something you have to work on all the time. Um, this is going to sound a little odd, but healthcare has always been um, opaque to people. You, and part of it is because you come into it for the most part when you're in crisis. I think in general, we need to move to more preventive interventions so that we don't have so many people getting so into medical crisis and then getting care. And I think that's an issue that's a problem in the entire country. Um, we just have to really start, because you can see when you do preventive uh, interventions, how children, families, communities thrive. Right. Are you seeing nurses coming back? You know, there's a there was a huge, you know, um, not influx, but a lot of nurses left the field. It was it was too stressful and too hard uh, yeah. during the pandemic. Are, are you seeing them coming back? Not only am I seeing them coming back, I'm seeing them coming in, right? Starting their careers in nursing. And um, I think that's actually a wonderful affirmation of where we will go. Um, and nurses and doctors have a special place in them that inspires them um, to do the work that they do, as hard as it is, is in moments of joy and deep sadness and challenge. Um, I know every time I walk in the hospital, my entire demeanor changes and I get in my, like, I'm a nurse mode. I bet. Yeah, I bet. Um, well, the latest thing I have for you, it just, it's fascinating to me, the two different roles you have. I can't imagine what a typical day is. <laughs> it's a busy one. It's a each, busy one. Each role makes me better at the other role. Hands down. There is no denying that. And, uh. A lot of people asked me when I was appointed as the chair, like, I don't understand how you're going to do this. Like, how are you going to be the CEO and the chair at the same time? And I'm like, if I was a guy, would you ask me that question? It's a couple of big executives in this city who had big, massive jobs who were also chairs of pretty big institutions. And I don't and think anybody boards. Yes. I don't think anybody called them and said, how are you going to do that? Yeah. Um, so I believe that if you are in a space that you are deeply engaged, that you are learning from and contributing to, time doesn't become an issue. Yeah, I you can see how much time. you love you love the work. You love what you're doing. It's really it's really wonderful. Um, I wish you continued success and thank you so much for being on the show to share some of your story. A lot of great lessons. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a fabulous fast hour. <laughs> yes, it has. It has. Uh, stay tuned for our watch team, and we'll be right back. Action News, celebrating 50 years of AccuWeather. If you think severe weather has been on the rise, you are correct. In the last three years, tornado warnings in our region have shattered records. With 52 last year alone, half of those warnings resulted in confirmed tornadoes, including two extremely rare EF3s. Thanks for always trusting us to keep you informed. 50 Years of AccuWeather is sponsored by Independence Blue Cross. Choose coverage you can count on with the region's strongest network. Is the best vacation one that you find or one you get lost in? One that takes you to new heights or reminds you to go with the flow? To get your feet wet and your wheels spinning? One that lets you find your own rhythm or get carried away? Find the best of yourself. Get lost in the woods. Plan your stay in the wild woods today.
From Philadelphia to the Lehigh Valley and everywhere in between, for 150 years, Penn Community Bank has been a part of your neighborhood. Helping businesses start, supporting families as they grow, and staying connected to the people and places that make this region special. It's who we are and where we're from. Penn Community Bank. Here we are, and here we grow. There's a moment every hour, every day, every week. These moments shape our world. They add color, perspective, and sometimes pain. Moments are meant to be shared, shared by friends, family, people you trust. At Action News, we cherish every moment, and it's our profound responsibility to bring you closer to your world. Never miss a moment. Trust the people at Action News. Do you stream on a Roku, a Fire Stick, Google TV, or Apple TV? Now you can watch 6ABC 24-7 with the 6ABC Philadelphia streaming app. Watch Action News Live. And the big story on Action News. Plus special programming, breaking news, and severe weather updates. Tremendous amounts of rain. Always on. Always the news team you trust. Watch 6ABC 24-7 on your streaming device. Search 6ABC Philadelphia and start streaming today. Hi, this is Sue Rocco. Women to Watch is pleased to share a clip from Breaking Through, a podcast hosted by Madeline Bell, the president and CEO of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. This interview is part of a series in which Madeline interviews CHOPs women scientists about what inspires them and advice they have for other women interested in pursuing science and medicine careers. My guest today is Dr. Diva DeLeon. Dr. DeLeon is Chief of the Division of Endocrinology and Diabetes at CHOP. She is also co-director of a frontier program that is focused on developing new treatments for a rare disease called congenital hyperinsulinism. Did you have any role models or mentors along the way once you chose your path as a physician? Particularly, I can remember a pediatric resident. So this resident gave me opportunities to develop some new skills as a medical student that some of my peers did, did not have the opportunity to develop. And I think that was important for me to see the path in front of me and to make me feel confident in my decision of becoming a pediatrician. Let's get back to a little bit about your work and your research. Can you tell our listeners what is congenital hyperinsulinism? is basically the opposite to diabetes. So in diabetes, your blood sugar is high because you do not produce enough insulin. In hyperinsulinism, your blood sugar is low because you produce too much insulin. What would happen to a child in the future if their hyperinsulinism was not treated? Failure of brain function that in the short term can manifest with a seizure and even death. To hear more of Madeline's interviews with CHOP's amazing doctors and scientists, listen to Breaking Through with Madeline Bell, available wherever you get your podcasts. At Action News, we cherish every moment, and it's our profound responsibility to bring you closer to your world. Never miss a moment. Trust the people at Action News. Now, the Women to Watch, Military Watch. Fewer than half of eligible veterans use the VA health benefits they are entitled to. 
but those who do use the VA, more than 80% of veterans are satisfied with the VA care. Hi, I'm Carol Eggert, Senior Vice President of Military Affairs at Comcast NBC Universal. Now, you may be asking, why should this matter to me? I share this with you because most of our listeners have some connection to the veterans in their community and may have the opportunity to share information about this new VA benefit. The VA has just launched the PACT Act, which is the Promise to Address Comprehensive Toxics, which is the most significant expansion of veteran benefits and care in more than three decades empowering the VA to help millions of toxic-exposed veterans and their survivors. The PACT Act expands VA health care and benefits for veterans exposed to burn pits, Agent Orange, and many other toxic substances. The PACT Act adds to the list of health conditions that the VA presumes are caused by exposure to these substances. This law helps the VA provide generations of veterans and their survivors with the care and benefits they've earned and deserve. The PACT Act is the least we can do for the countless men and women who suffered toxic exposure while serving their country, said President Biden during the PACT Act bill signing ceremony. It means access to life insurance, home loan insurance, tuition benefits, and help with health care. So what can you do? Simply refer those veterans you know to va.gov and tell them to search the PACT Act to learn more. That's it for another week of Women to Watch. Thanks so much for being with me. And thank you as always to Kateri for producing the show and all of our watch team members and sponsors. Next week, I'll be joined by Dr. Jin Lee. She is a neuropsychologist and entrepreneur and an advisor. Have a great week, everyone. Action News, celebrating 50 years with AccuWeather. If you think severe weather has been on the rise, you are correct. In the last three years, tornado warnings in our region have shattered records. With 52 last year alone, half of those warnings resulted in confirmed tornadoes, including two extremely rare EF3s. Thanks for always trusting us to keep you informed. 50 Years of AccuWeather is sponsored by Independence Blue Cross. Choose coverage you can count on with the region's strongest network. Is the best vacation one that you find or one you get lost in? One that takes you to new heights or reminds you to go with the flow? To get your feet wet and your wheels spinning? One that lets you find your own rhythm or get carried away? Find the best of yourself. Get lost in the woods. Plan your stay in the Wildwoods today. From Philadelphia to the Lehigh Valley and everywhere in between, for 150 years, Penn Community Bank has been a part of your neighborhood. Helping businesses start, supporting families as they grow, and staying connected to the people and places that make this region special. It's who we are and where we're from. Penn Community Bank. Here we are, and here we grow. There's a moment every hour, every day, every week. These moments shape our world. They add color, perspective, and sometimes pain. Moments are meant to be shared. Shared by friends, family, people you trust. At Action News, 
We cherish every moment, and it's our profound responsibility to bring you closer to your world. Never miss a moment. Trust the people at Action News. Do you stream on a Roku, a Fire Stick, Google TV, or Apple TV? Now you can watch 6ABC 24-7 with the 6ABC Philadelphia streaming app. Watch Action News live. And the big story on Action News. Plus special programming, breaking news, and severe weather updates. Tremendous amounts of rain. Always on. Always the news team you trust. Watch 6ABC 24-7 on your streaming device. Search 6ABC Philadelphia and start streaming today.